So Colossians 1, verses 3 through 8. Um, if you've been with us for a while, uh, you might be asking, what happened to the book of Mark that we were going through um, over the last several months? Uh, the plan is for us to actually move through the book of Mark over the next two years, but in kind of smaller chunks um, at key junctions in the text, we'll take a break and then come back to it uh, at a later point. So um, if you remember, we finished at the end of Mark chapter 4. Uh, we'd been asking and answering the question, who is Jesus, over and over and over again. Uh, the last text that we studied, we saw Jesus on a boat, uh, calming a storm with the word of his mouth, and the disciples asking the question, who then is this? And as we prayed about what book to jump into next, out of that specific question, uh, we thought about another book that actually answers that question. Uh, you heard last week that Colossians is all about the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ above all things. So while we're going to come back um, to Mark chapter 5 later in the year, we believe that Colossians is a great connecting point to the question that Mark set up for us. We've learned last week that Paul is actually writing from prison in Rome to a church in Colossae that he never actually personally met. So, I want you just for a moment to put yourself in Paul's shoes for a second. If you were in prison writing to a church over 1,200 miles away, and you know that they're experiencing challenges to the gospel, what would you write to them? How would you begin your letter to the Colossian church? We saw last week that Paul started by first asserting his apostleship and reminding them of their dual citizenship, both in Christ and in Colossae. He greeted them with grace and peace. But what would he write next? What would you write next? Let's dive into the text. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. He says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So, confession, I'm not typically the type to use alliteration in my sermon points, but uh, this text lends itself to it, and I think this breakdown of the text from Ligon Duncan is actually helpful. So, uh, the three sections of today's text are, are these. Number one, thanksgiving. Number two, the triad. And number three, testimony. So point number one, thanksgiving. Look with me again at verse three. 
He says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Is this how you would start your letter? I probably wouldn't. You're writing to a church who's beginning to buy into a Gnostic heresy, if you remember, so much so that the church planner, the guy who started the church, Epaphras, has to travel over 1,200 miles to visit you in prison to ask for help. 1,200 miles on foot. Then 1,200 miles back. That's like traveling from Santa Cruz to Portland and back twice. It's like traveling from here to Santa Barbara six times. So that's, that's the situation. But Paul starts with generosity and thanksgiving. Think about that. What if we all took this approach in all of our online and personal interactions? You ever been around one of those people who's just going to criticize you no matter what you say or do? It's exhausting, right? And I fear that we as Christians are no better than the world in this. Christians on social media can be brutal. There's always going to be something to criticize. And Paul certainly could have started there. But he doesn't. He doesn't start with, come on, guys, you're blowing it. But instead, with, we thank God for you and pray for you. And don't forget that Paul's writing from prison. (laughs) If anyone would get a pass for kind of being discouraged and flying off the handle at them, it'd be Paul. What if we began most of our interactions generous instead of critical? I'd probably feel a lot like Jesus. This isn't to say that there aren't times to challenge someone's worldview or doctrine. Paul certainly does that. But he begins here with gratitude. Let's consider that. Let's strive to have a posture of always giving thanks to God for what he's doing in our midst and in the midst of other churches. Think about what we said two weeks ago on the Lord's Supper. When we take it, we're meant to look around in unity. So when you look around this room, are you grateful for what God has done and is doing in the people of this church? First, that would involve knowing what's going on in the lives of people in this church. That doesn't happen by accident. We need to be involved in one another's lives intentionally so that we can give thanks to God for what's going on. And this is where the discipleship piece that we talked about last week comes in. Get to know each other through getting together, opening the Bible, and praying with and for one another, intentionally doing spiritual good to one another. Now, We're going to look at the word faith more in depth in just a little bit, but for now, I want us to see something that, to us, might seem a bit strange. Paul sees the Colossians' faith, and he thanks who? 
God, right? Why does he do this here? In fact, why does he always do this? Well, because he knows that faith is a gift from God. If faith was due to something in them as the Colossians, he'd say something like, Congratulations, Colossians. You did it. You're just that much smarter than the pagans. You've earned it. Your good deeds. Whew, man, you guys are awesome. Instead, he thanks God for their faith, the faith that he sees in the Colossians, because he knows that it came from God. God was the originator of their faith. Paul looked at them and said, because you guys have faith in God, faith in Christ, God's been at work in you. Thank you, God, for that truth. Second, think about how this message sweeps the legs out from under the Gnostic heresy that we talked about. The Gnostics are telling the Colossians that they need some kind of secret spiritual knowledge to be real Christians. Paul starts by thanking God that they already have faith in Christ, the real thing, the only thing that they need. Third, Paul acknowledges that he and Timothy, who are the, the we in this text that he's referring to, he acknowledges that he and Timothy pray for them. Again, remember that Paul has never actually met them as a church. He's in prison in Rome. And he's praying for this little church in Colossae. And this is instructive for us. Do we ever spend time praying for other churches? Yes, we spend time doing that here in our services. But do we do it anywhere else? When asked about his prayer life, one of the things that, that John Piper has shared over and over and over again is that he likes to pray in what he calls coincentric circles. So here's the idea behind that. When you pray, you know yourself best, right? You know your own heart. So start there. Pray for what's going on in you. Then widen it out a little bit. Pray for your family. Then pray for your church. Then pray for your city including other churches in your city. Then expand that out to missionaries, other cities, the ends of the earth. If you don't know what to pray for there, come talk to me. I'd love to get you started. There's this book called Operation World. Really helpful. Uh, it talks about people groups of every tribe, tongue, and nation all over the world and some specific things that you might be able to pray for them or for missionaries that are in their midst. So this is a good resource that we always have over in our prayer room with a bunch of other resources that can guide prayer. Uh, something I printed up for us today that I'd love for you to have a copy of on your way out is just a list of churches that I personally have a relationship with. Uh, the names of the church, the name of the pastor, and their website if you want to know a little bit more about how you can pray for them. So I've printed up these. That, that's a good place to start. So that's where Paul starts. He starts with thanksgiving. But what is it that he's explicitly thankful for? Point two, the triad. Look with me at verses four and five. So starting in verse three, he says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. If you've ever been to a wedding before, you know what the triad is, right? Faith, hope, and love. Paul uses these three words over and over and over again, kind of as shorthand for genuine Christianity. He mentions this triad in places like 1 Corinthians 13, the wedding chapter, right? And 1 Thessalonians 1, or 1, chapter 1, verse 3. But here in Colossians, he uses those three words, but in a little bit different order. We're used to hearing the three words as faith, hope, and love. Here, the order's different, and Paul does that to make a specific point. So let's look at each word and kind of walk through what they mean and what Paul's doing with them. First, Paul says, we thank God since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So you've heard people say things like, you just got to have faith. Sounds positive. Sounds maybe even inspiring, right? Just have faith. But it's vague. Faith in what? Faith in faith? Paul doesn't leave it unclear for us. Faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the object of the Colossians' faith. Faith by itself has no intrinsic value. It only derives value in its object. So hear this. Faith isn't just blind optimism or head-in-the-sand belief. Faith has an object, and that object is Jesus. What do I mean by that? I mean that Jesus isn't just an idea. He's a person. He's a person, fully God and fully man who came to this earth and accomplished objective things. He came and paid a real debt that we owed because of our sin. He transferred real righteousness that he earned by obeying the Father completely. He died a real death and rose from a real grave. Having faith in Christ isn't vain. It's trusting in the person and the work of Jesus. It's an all-out commitment to him. John G. Patton was a missionary to this group known as the New Hebrides. And while he was there, part of what he was doing was translating the Bible into their language. And this word faith or belief gave him some fits. He had trouble translating or finding a word that actually fit the word faith. So he knew that he needed to find the right word. And after working and working and working, he finally found it. He found a word that meant to lean your whole weight upon. To lean your whole weight upon. And that's exactly what the Colossians had done. They had leaned their whole weight upon Christ and found him sufficient to hold them. Paul celebrates that. Despite what the Gnostics were telling the church at Colossae, that they needed this secret spirituality, Paul is celebrating that they leaned their whole weight on Christ instead. And look at what he says next. 
So since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So surprise, surprise. Love has an object too. The saints. Who did we learn last week are our saints? All Christians. Paul, the apostle, is more specific than Paul McCartney. The Beatles said, all you need is love. Again, love of love? Love for what? Paul is specific. Love for all the saints. So understand this. In the Bible, loving God is expressed through loving your neighbor. John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We're called to love, and not just the lovable. We're called to love all the saints. This is where the rubber meets the road on real Christianity. It's great to talk about love, but it's meaningful and real when you actually love real people. This is where the gospel gets displayed in a local church. Real people loving real people in practical and radical ways. For a season, it became popular to say things like, I love Jesus, but not the church. Our friend Dan Kimball across town actually wrote a book kind of addressing that kind of sentiment outside the church. But that's impossible for real Christians. If you love Jesus, you'll love all the saints. That's not to say that there won't ever be frustrations with the church. No church is perfect because we're all a group of sinners, right? If there were a perfect church, I would ruin it by joining because I'm a sinner, right? But genuine Christianity displays itself through faith in Christ and love for the saints. It's a beautiful thing that when you see Love for all the saints in the church. People of different backgrounds, ages, races, economic statuses, affinities, all loving one another with the love of Christ. That's where the genuineness of our Christianity is displayed in reality. That's worth being thankful for and celebrating. But here's the amazing truth. I told you earlier that the normal order of faith, hope, and love is different here in Colossians 1. Look at what Paul uses as his anchor. He says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, verse 5, because of hope, the hope laid up for you in heaven. So their faith and love spring out of or because of the hope they have in heaven. So let's just stop and ask the question, how does hope in heaven draw out or, or produce faith and love? We might be tempted to think 
it's the other way around, right? That our faith in Christ produces hope in heaven. But Paul gives a different order. First, what do we even mean by hope? What is hope? Well, it's not just a wish. It's not head in the clouds, smile on your face, ignorance that just really hopes that this all works out. Not at all. Hope in Scripture is a confident assurance and expectancy. I'll say that again. Hope in Scripture is a confident assurance and expectancy. One pastor here says that hope expects what faith believes. Hope expects what faith believes. I think that's helpful. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In other words, hope is expecting the reality of the promises of God, which leads you to trust in Christ. Further, hope actually leads to love of the saints. When we know that we have a sure hope in heaven, an inheritance that's unfading, as First Peter says, when we know that that's true, it changes how we live in the present. So how can you love when people maybe have been unloving to you? How can that happen? When you know that there's a just God who will one day make everything right. Our hope in heaven should make us more godly on earth. Look at how Titus chapter 2 says it. Titus 2, 11 through 14. It says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. How about 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, verses 2 through 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So do you see that? Your hope in heaven makes you more Christ-like. In other words, the phrase that he's so heavenly-minded that he's of no earthly good is hogwash. The more heavenly-minded you are, the more you'll love others like Christ. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Weight of Glory, he famously says this. He says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see what he's saying? 
saying that the more we set our minds upon heaven, the less satisfied we're going to be with this world. We won't be okay with making mud pies in a slum because we've actually imagined a holiday at sea. Think about the Lord's Prayer. What does Jesus tell us we should pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the more you think on and the more you hope for heaven, the more solid your faith and your love will be. Christians can sometimes be known as, well, you know, the neighbor who does all the religious things because they're trying to be moral or maybe they're part of church as a social thing. Not the Colossians. Paul is thanking God because their lives were fueled not by morality or, or, or being part of a social group, but their lives were fueled by hope. Let's flip this around the other way, maybe. What happens when we don't think about the hope of heaven? What happens to our faith and love? They're not as strong as they could be, Right? If you've ever read the Apostle Paul's account of when he was taken up to see heaven, go read 2 Corinthians 12. It's a wild explanation. But we know that that moment fueled Paul to trust Christ through suffering because he knew what was held for him in heaven. Hope for heaven. In fact, I want to take some time, I want you guys to take some time, even this week, to go meditate on a couple of passages on heaven. If you got your pens, write these down. Go read through Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. It's this amazing vision of God on the throne and all that's going on around him. Then go read Revelation 19 through 22. Amazing vision of heaven. Meditate on that. Pray through that. Think upon it. Hope for it. So Revelation 4, Revelation 19 through 22. Then go read Isaiah 6. Then go read Genesis 1 and 2. Think about how heaven will be a perfection of the garden before sin entered the world. Start there. Those are our good passages to think on heaven and to hope for heaven. And if you really want to take a deep dive, uh, there's a book called Heaven by a guy named Randy Alcorn. I highly recommend that book. Helpful for meditating and, and thinking on heaven. So faith and love spring forth from the expected reality of heaven. Paul's thankful for this glorious triad. Third and finally, Paul finishes with a testimony. So point three, a testimony. Look with me at verses 6 through 8, and we're going to start reading in the middle of verse 5. He says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it, and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So you see what Paul's saying here. He's saying, Colossians, the gospel, the word of truth, 
It's winning. <laughs> it's spreading everywhere and it's producing fruit. Just as you learned it from Epaphras. That gospel that he taught you, it's producing fruit. Again, from the beginning, this is completely undercutting the Gnostic teaching. The gospel you learned from Epaphras, not the, the extra secret, super spiritual stuff. The gospel you heard from Epaphras is producing fruit. So just to, to brag for a second, our garden right now in our backyard, it's insane. We've got so much growth going on. It's actually producing things this year. Guess what? I'm not going to go looking for something else to, 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 to improve it. Why? Because it's producing. It's doing what it's supposed to. Now, last year was a different story. The soil wasn't producing. So I knew something was wrong. I knew that I needed something else. That's Paul's point here. The simple gospel that Epaphras taught you, it's producing fruit. You don't need to look for anything else, Colossians. Santa Cruz Baptist Church. The same is true for us today. The simple gospel of Jesus Christ is what each and every one of us needs every hour of every day. We don't need to attempt to add to it. Kids, you've been learning these truths in your catechisms. God created all things, and everything he created was very good, right? He created us, male and female, in his own image, to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. But mankind sinned against God, rebelling against him, cutting themselves off from relationship, deserving the full amount of God's just wrath and eternal death. So God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life. Then he died on the cross in place of sinners so that those who would repent and believe would be saved and have eternal life. That's the simple gospel. That's the only gospel. That's the good news that bears fruit in the lives of the world, not just a secret few. It's the same good news that's bearing fruit today. Now, I want you to take a minute right now with a pen and paper in hand, and I want you to start with your own life. How is the gospel bearing fruit in and through you? Think on that. How is the gospel bearing fruit in and through you? I'll just briefly share some other examples. I think about here in Santa Cruz County. Even though the, the percentage of evangelical Christians is low, there are some faithful pastors and faithful churches that God is using for his glory. I meet with a group of pastors regularly to talk and to pray about what the Lord's doing in their churches. We're not alone. The gospel is producing fruit. I think about the four guys that I went through my pastoral residency with. They're in four different churches around the country right now. The gospel faithfully being preached and people coming to know Jesus. The International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, I just 
pulled these stats up on, on their website yesterday. They reported last year, so 2019, 12,368 churches were planted globally. And 89,325 people repented and believed in Christ outside the U.S. alone. The gospel is bearing fruit. Let's praise God for that. In closing, I want to point out two quick truths. This isn't instrumental to the main point of the text, but I want you to notice what Paul says about Epaphras at the end of verse 7. It says, He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. This is what a faithful minister of Christ is. Someone who's ministering on your behalf. Now, we know from Ephesians 4 that every member is a minister. We're all called to minister for, for and with Christ. But a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Not someone who's ministering to build their own platform. Not someone who's ministering as a, as a stepping stone to a bigger and better job. But someone who's ministering on your behalf. Paul's commending what they had in the person of Epaphras and what we should look for in ministers of the gospel. Pastors aren't perfect. Sorry to burst your bubble, we're just not. We're sinners saved by grace, just like every other Christian. But pastors are called to mimic the good shepherd himself, Jesus. Look at what Jesus says. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 15. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. Faithful ministers do the same for their flocks. They minister on their behalf. Finally, I want to end by calling your attention to the last sentence. It says, He, meaning Epaphras, is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Faith, love, hope aren't natural characteristics. They're not natural to us. But they are something that the Holy Spirit produces in us. And that's where Paul and I will end this morning. Without the Spirit living in us, none of this happens. We won't be naturally thankful, or trusting, or loving, or hopeful, faithful people. When you see these things evidenced in one another's lives, it's a true work of God in the Spirit that we should be grateful for. Let's pray.